So this is an area of research we are getting into, which is to build our dharma response to the social sciences. One of the problems is in the new education policy in India, NEP 2020, uh, they've, uh, they've uh, encouraged liberal arts and a lot of people are now therefore importing the Harvard variety of liberal arts into tech, technology and all over the universities because we don't have our own version. But if you look at the traditional Indian knowledge systems, what the West calls liberal arts has existed in a very mature way. So to develop our, you know, response to develop our theory of social structure, social justice, etc. So nice, so nice. Thank you. And I'm honored to be here. Wonderful. Wonderful. All of your students here? Yes. Very good. Dr. Sharma is the founder and president of the Canadian Organization for Hindu Heritage Education. Previously, she worked for over 25 years as a social worker. Her doctoral studies were on decolonizing yoga in academia. She's currently working with many school boards and other public institutions, such as the police institution, uh, for addressing Hindu phobia in Canada. Namaste everybody. Uh, I feel grateful for this opportunity to introduce Srimati Vijaya Vishwanathanji for this event. Uh, Vijaya Vishwanathanji is a mechanical engineer by training and holds an MBA from one of the most prestigious business schools in the world, the Wharton Business School. After a successful uh, corporate career in manufacturing and finance based in the United States, Europe and Singapore, Vijayaji has opened a new chapter of her life by dedicating herself and shifting focus to education. Uh, as she embarked on a homeschooling uh, journey with her children, she gained deep insights into the relevance of dharmic knowledge systems in modern education. Uh, Vijayaji is active in initiatives that focus on curricula, pedagogy, and mentoring. She is a scholar of the Vedanta philosophy and studied under Sri Swami uh, Dayanand Saraswatiji. Vijayaji uh, also serves on the board of Infinity Foundation. I humbly invite Srimati Vijaya Vishwanathanji to give a talk on the intrinsics of the book, Snakes in the Ganga. Dhanyama. Thank you for that very kind and generous introduction. It's so lovely to be with uh, all of you today. Such a nice young uh, group of uh, enthusiastic uh, dharmic students. Always a pleasure. Okay, I will carry on. So the book Snakes in the Ganga, uh, first of all, talks about how critical race theory, which you all might be somewhat familiar with, is mapped on to the Indian uh, social context and called critical caste theory. Now, Sri Jeffrey Armstrong very correctly pointed out how our worldview is very different. Uh, languages are different, yet you know the, the bhasha gives you the bhava, the attitude towards life, and hence 
our societies are very different and unfortunately western social scientists have come up with a theory that perhaps justified or not uh, applies to their societies and their societal problems which includes slavery and coming to a new land acquiring different um, uh lands and properties from various native people which is actually not our history and uh, they have uh, they have mapped their social science theories upon india calling it critical caste theory so what follows then is a nomination by western scholars on who the oppressors and oppressors will be uh, oppressors and oppressed will be in the indian context they assign victimhood and of course go on to demand reparations on behalf of the victims they have assigned now the chief justice of india uh, has said that critical race theory and inter intersectionality are useful tools so these are tools that are used to study western uh, social problems but the chief justice of india has said that these are useful tools to study the indian social context and he wants rights new rights to be uh, to be uh, you know installed on the on the people because there are new uh, victimhood categories you know the synthetic victimhood categories so just in case you think this is something only of an you know of indian origin and an indian problem and it doesn't affect you because you've left uh india and you're considered a diaspora hindu uh you are mistaken because we are we have the uh, very infamous uh, cisco case of 2020 so in 2018 there's a an ngo by the name of equality labs that did some groundwork for litigation targeting hindu and indian americans especially in the tech fields and in 2020 as a result of that survey that they had um, they had conducted showing that there is discrimination prevalent uh, in the indian um, uh, tech workers uh, you know workforce uh, in 2020 uh, the california department of uh, fair employment and housing filed a lawsuit uh, claim against cisco system uh saying alleging them of uh, caste discrimination and it was filed on behalf of an anonymous dalit uh, indian dalit engineer now the agency claimed that cisco was overrepresented by south asian indian employees and they were practicing the strict religious hindu religious social hierarchy which led to this discrimination in the first place so as a result of this what has happened is there have been uh, caste sensitivity training all over in the us at in especially in silicon valley which essentially involves admitting that you are an oppressor uh, and even if you're innocent because you belong to the identity group of upper caste now denial or refuting this is not an option because it is based on a collective identity and therefore you are culpable now since george floyd um, incident happened in uh, you know uh, right during the pandemic the prominence of black life matters movement brought about a different change in society and the critical race theorists um, in the west 
and jumped on the bandwagon to hold brown people responsible for upholding whiteness. So as race was mapped on India as uh, you know, using caste, calling it critical caste theory, now we have white privilege and white fragility mapped onto brown folks in the diaspora, calling it brown privilege and brown fragility. You know, ensuring that that those who live in the diaspora are not left out. So I'm not kidding about brown fragility, but let's first talk about what white fragility is so you understand what brown fragility is. So in uh, 2018, there was a best-selling book by a person by the name of Robin D'Angelo. She wrote a book called uh, White Fragility, and it became an instant bestseller uh, given the backdrop of George Floyd and the BLM movement. Now, D'Angelo accuses white people as a group of being racist without giving any evidence, right? And D'Angelo says the white privilege itself causes fragility, and any and she defines fragility as the, the the fact that any conversation on this racial bias is very hard for white people and therefore they're fragile. That's her, that's her thesis. So D'Angelo says that, goes on to say that fragility captures how little it takes to set white people off in a defensive mode. Yeah. So generalizing it will set it off, she says, and bringing it up will set it off. So if you tell a white person that you're racist and he says, me racist? Prove it. Or how come? I'm not. So that makes him racist, right? So D'Angelo says that if you deny racism, it is proof that you are indeed guilty of racism. Now, this essentially, she says, is true because she says, after so many years of affirmative action, we still are seeing that there is inequality in outcome. Yeah, white, white people are still doing better than black people, even though there's affirmative action and so many different policies, it hasn't worked, right? So she decides, she says it, that the system is inherently biased and that is why we are getting unequal outcome. So that's her thesis. Now, in 2020, when you had the BLM movement, uh, which rose in the US after, after, Floyd, after the murder of uh, George Floyd, uh, the Black Life, Lives Matters movement took offense to the idea of calling Asians the model minority, right? They said essentially Asians were, uh, were essentially being held as this model minority and it's coming at the expense of the black people. So they claim that brownness is complicit in upholding white uh, supremacy. So you guys are not going to be spared. So thus, Brown fragility was born, which is, of course, born out of brown privilege. And, and because brown people, they try to mimic white people in, 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 in the values. And so they're called white adjacent and are considered, um, uh, you know, model minorities by the white people. And therefore, brown people have somehow become traitors of the Black Lives Matter movement. So this is sort of an emotionally manipulative technique to ensure that you accept that you are also guilty of, of, of caste, 
bias and you apologize and you become an ally of the critical race um, you know, theorists. Now, the problem with critical race theory is making wild assertions and claims uh, as though they are facts without showing any proof yeah, and not giving any room for anyone to refute these ideas. And they have a built-in cancel culture uh, mechanism. Now, how it works is um, there's a great example. In 2017, a, a Google engineer, so this guy was a, a graduated from MIT, a very smart engineer, uh, white man, and um, he loved Google. He loved working for Google. Uh, he was a self-professed nerd, and his name was James Demore, and he went uh, to a diversity training program at Google where sexism and gender discrimination was essentially cited as the cause uh, for lower numbers of women in high-tech companies. So Demore being this nerdy guy opened up a debate and said, you know, I've been doing some research and he suggested that perhaps there are other factors. He didn't say that there was no uh, sexism or gender bias, but he said there are other factors that could perhaps uh, cause uh, this problem of, you know, of gender parity in, in, in Silicon Valley. So he demo cited some studies uh, in, his, in a memo he wrote to Google HR department, like the famous um, Scandinavian study. So there's a large Scandinavian study and it showed that gender distribution could not be made equal in occupations between men and women. And Scandinavia, as you all know, it's an open society. It's a free society. There's a lot of encouragement. Education is free. Um, and there are really no uh, stumbling blocks for women to do well in any STEM field. And yet they found in Scandinavia that men, there were more men in engineering and STEM fields, and there were more women in nursing profession professions. So the study also you know, showed that women favored people-related jobs as opposed to men, and uh, because men favored jobs related to things. And mind you, this was not in happening in India. It was happening in Scandinavia. Otherwise, India would be blamed for Hindu patriarchy or some such things if this came out from, uh, you know, from India. So some scholars also, other scholars had suggested uh, had concluded that innate biological differences exist, which may explain this uh, gender parity issue. And Demore also showed some studies that said that men were better in spatial reasoning, um, giving them an edge in fields like computer science. Now, what is even more interesting that Demore showed was some of the studies said that when you have a society that's totally unrestricted and free, we find men and women become even more different in the kinds of jobs they choose. So you find women gravitating more towards when they have choice uh, and the freedom, they gravitate more towards jobs that, that relate to people and men go on the other side working with things. Now, but in the case of James Dem uh, Demo, what happened was he was promptly fired uh, and Google said, uh, he was fired for advancing harmful gender stereotypes because he simply tried to suggest that there could possibly be other variables at play to you know that 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 are causing this gender gap in tech companies so this is essentially cancel culture at at work and you will as young people you know in the university and getting into the job market you will face uh, cancel culture as you enter the workforce you will be forced to uh, use made up synthetic pronouns of someone uh, and you'll be forced to use them else you will be accused of uh, brown fragility 
And so I urge you all to be courageous and stand for truth, whatever that might be. We started off with an invocation prayer that Vak and Artha, you know, the word and meaning are inseparable like Parvati and Parameshwara. So uh, whereas critical race theory uh, theorists believe otherwise, they say it's everybody's truth, your truth is different from my truth, whereas we believe in a single truth, and which is an objective truth. And so it is easier as you enter the workforce and as you go ahead in life, it's easier to be organized and form support groups so that you can help one another out as you face Hindu phobia and discrimination based on critical race, critical caste theory or brown fragility. Uh, I hope uh, you, know, you are aware and opening your eyes uh, to all these things that are, that are happening around you and you support one another as you embark on your journeys. So with that, I will uh, end my talk and thank you so much for having me. Rajini ji, I kindly invite you to introduce uh, Dr. Rajiv Malhotra. It is my great honor and pleasure to introduce my academic mentor and dear friend, dear Sheikh Rajiv Malhotra ji. Thank you, Rajiv ji, for choosing Toronto for the North American launch of your new book, Snakes in the Ganga, Breaking India 2.0. I'm also excited to announce that this is the first event organized by a new organization, Kohi, Canadian Organization for Hindu Heritage Education. This is Rajiv Ji's second event at UFT. We welcome you back, Rajiv Ji. Your talk here today, led by the Hindu Student Council at the University of Toronto is fitting because each one of your book, books is a textbook on Hinduism. And you are an educator par excellence. When I was a doctoral student in education at York U, I was struggling to make sense of academic Hinduphobia. I was so fortunate to stumble into your book being different. That book changed the course of my academic life and I was the first to quote his work extensively in my dissertation. I recommend every Hindu student to read Being Different to understand what is distinct about being a Hindu. Indeed, Rajiji is a towering thought leader of our times, a modern Rishi. He is, on his website, he's described as a best-selling author and a pioneer in the research on civilizations and their engagement with technology and media from the historical, social sciences, and mind sciences perspective. The book cover of Snakes in the Ganga describes him as a researcher and public intellectual on civilization studies, world religions, and cross-cultural encounters. Trained initially as a physicist, and then as a computer scientist, he, has successful, he had a successful corporate career in the US. As an entrepreneur, he founded and ran several IT companies across 20 countries. In the early 1990s, he founded his nonprofit, Infinity Foundation, and has since 
devoted his life to serving Dharma. He, he undertook original grassroots foundational research on Hindophobia in the academia, threats to Hindu civilization, which he called breaking India forces. He has authored several best-selling books that have, that have had a huge impact on many leading intellectuals worldwide, including in the field of in artificial intelligence. I want to point out that there is a whole showcase of his books there. Rajiji's books have been paradigm shifting, and his work continues to create a thought revolution. On a personal level, his books and talks have inspired and woken up millions of Hindus to learn more about their history and identity. He continues to do Mark Darshan for hundreds of Dharmic scholars, and we need more students to bring his work into academia. He invites us all to join what he calls his collective yagna for dharma in whatever way we can. I'm so excited for you to be here and to listen to his talk on his book, Snake of Gand Snakes on the Ganga. Thank you, Rajiji, for being here. Namaste, everyone. Lots of uh, familiar faces. Been here. Uh, in Toronto several times over the last 15 years, not recently due to COVID, and always enjoyed my stays. And, and I must say, as the years have gone by, some of the old friends and allies have stuck with this. Many have, of course, dropped off because it's a revolving door. In our, our community, uh, you know, people get interested, and then after a while, they jump off and do something else. But it's good to see some old faces who've been there for a long time. <clears throat> Vijaya gave a wonderful, uh, is she still online? I hope she is. Yeah, good. She gave a wonderful opening to our book. Uh, it's a joint project that has taken us a long time. It, I don't want you to be scared by the size of the book. I'm going to tell you the secret. You don't have to read more than 100 pages. Now, that's good news for a student. <laughs> <clears throat> so um, the reason is that it's written at multiple levels. You don't have to read all the levels. If you are not a scholar wanting to track all the evidence and write your own dissertation, then the last 300 pages, which is full of a 100-page bibliography and another 150 pages or so of uh, uh, you know endnotes, uh, you don't have to worry about. But if you are a student and you want to write your own PhD, or there, there could be several PhDs written out of this book, then that's important for you. Uh, so for most ordinary people, that's not what they want. Now, as far as the main 600 pages are concerned, that also is written in multiple levels. The introduction, which is 40-some pages, and the conclusion, which is another 30, 40 pages, in between are 22 chapters, and each of them has a one-page overview. So if you read the introduction, the one-page overviews, and then the conclusion, in about 100, some page, 100 pages, you will know what the book says. You will have a very good idea of what the thesis is, what the problems are, 
you know, and, and so on. And then you can dive into the chapter, any particular chapter where you want more details. So the chapters are written such that you can go to any of them. You don't have to read the book cover to cover. If a particular topic interests you, when you read the overview, you go deeper, otherwise you don't. So it's not, uh, it's not a, a scary book. I mean, it, it weighs a lot, so it's good for exercise. <laughs> <clears throat> now, um, since I'm in Canada, I should say something Canada-specific too. So, you know, the theory that we are ex explaining to Indians and Hindus, critical race theory, wokeism, is an application of Marxism, and now it's being applied, as Vijaya said, it's being mapped onto Indian social structures as though the Western experience is applicable, which it is not. So the core idea of Marxism applied to critical race theory, applied to critical caste theory, is that society should be divided into oppressed and oppressors. Oppressed means you have to go looking for who's oppressed, then you or the scholar can champion them because they cannot fight for themselves. That gives you something to do, it gives you power. And you got to tell them who's their oppressor. So that way it's always about conflict. That is inherent. Marxism has succeeded in deconstructing and destroying societies, but never succeeded in building anything new. You ask them, well, okay, fine, you want to do this, a revolution by the oppressed against the oppressors, but then after all that destruction, because you're calling for destruction, what happens next? They don't have an answer. They have no experience building anything ever. I mean, whether you look at the Russian Revolution, whether you look at Cuba or North Korea or wherever, they have no experience in actually constructing a better society or constructing any society. So what you leave is an anarchy. You leave a vacuum of power. So irresponsible people, could be the Taliban, could be the Chinese, could be anybody can come in and take over. Because if there's no structure left, then people are lost. So now, the structures that they are against are include family structure. The Hindu family structure is explicitly named and targeted as a source of abuse because it perpetuates the oppression that people have. They keep teaching to their children by living a certain example in a certain kind of life in the family. And so the next generation become like the parents and, the, and so on, it just continues. So if you want to break the cycle of uh, oppression continuing, then society must, <coughs> Hindu society must get rid of family structure. Now, you know what would happen if we didn't have family structure, if we didn't have any community structure, they're also against that. They're also against gurus. They're also against our Vedic, Vedic heritage. I mean, then what you'll have is a lot of lost people and they'll be useful idiots. They could be hired, recruited for all kinds of bad things. You know, so that's a serious problem. Now I'll tell you what the what about Canada because I promised you. The success of a social scientist in this area comes from identifying a group and saying, "Okay, I discovered you guys that are oppressed, and I have to teach you that you are oppressed, even if you didn't think so. But I have to convince you that you are oppressed, and I have to convince you of those guys have oppressed you." Because then, then I'm successful. I'm, I'm really applying my theory and it's working. 
So <clears throat> I come from Punjab and Punjab has been until recent turmoil the most successful in terms of financial I mean the peasants are very well off they're driving Mercedes you know Punjab has got Ludhiana had the largest number of Mercedes and Rolls Royces in India um, and that was my the city was born uh, it wasn't like that in those days uh, but it's become like that because the success the prosperity uh, of Punjab but now they've convinced that the Sikhs are oppressed and therefore uh, in the Canadian system of immigration there is a refugee category and to qualify as a refugee you have to belong to one of the designated named oppressed communities in the world. There's a list of oppressed communities and, and if, you, if, you, uh, uh, if you want to uh, get into the refugee quota, which is very nice way to get in, uh, you have to say, I belong to this particular community, it is oppressed, and I, my human rights are violated, I'm, uh, I'm subject to all these horrible things, and you have to give, go to the immigration officer uh, uh, in Canada, in, uh, in, the, in, in the embassy, in, in the High Commission in Delhi, and make your case and give them all this stuff that, you know, this is happening, dramatize. And so this business of bringing immigrants through the refugee route is, is, has resulted in a large community of India haters being present here. So somebody wanted to ask me, why do you think they are having this refer Khalistan referendum? Well, they are, one of the reasons is that these are a lot of people who came on the premise that they have to get out of a country because they are being oppressed and that they are being denied their human rights and Canada welcomes them because Canada has designated this, this community as oppressed thanks to this wokeism, critical race theory, this leftist Marxist ideology, that's what has happened. So it's a big industry for lawyers. L lawyers, immigration lawyers, you go and say, you, I mean, it's a whole business there, you go and see ads in India, in the Punjab that say, hey, listen, I, come on, you're oppressed, don't you want to go to Canada? I can help you get there, here's my fee. So that's, that's how you uh, do that. We hired a housekeeper in India, I mean, in, the, in Princeton, where we live, some time back, long ago, she's no longer there with us. And so I asked, you know, what is the, how did you get into the country and all that? So she said, I came on a, uh, one of these conferences and, uh, uh, you know, representing uh, human rights and I came to the conference. And so they asked me, are you, are you oppressed or are you a victim or are you, you know, and, and if you are, then we can get you a visa. So I said, yeah, I am. So it was. So so then she said I had to say all kind of things. So she she had, she had to say how you know his life is bad and all that. So this is kind of white man's burden, the white man projecting that you know we are the saviors and uh, you you are oppressed you are oppressed come I'll help you out. So what you are doing is breaking we call it the breaking India syndrome. You are breaking those societies by doing these kind of things. Uh, the British did this. The British had. Uh, uh, this human rights business, they come to civilize because uh, there's oppression going on and they, they justified their rule because they, it's good for the Indians uh, to, to be subject to this kind of colonial system uh, in order to uh, upgrade themselves, improve their society. So it is happening. This, the results of the syndrome that we are talking about in our book 
are visible in Canada in the type of immigrants that are coming and the resulting effect in Cana on Canadian society. So it's not like it's just a theoretical thing we're talking about. There are practical implications. Now, one of the, uh, so the book is in three parts. Uh, the first part is theory. The second part is where is this theory being applied? And we've taken Harvard as our case study because that's the epicenter where all this theory is being applied. And then the third is what is the effect on India? How do how do all how does all that information, all those things that are being done at Harvard, how are they sent back to India? And there we're talking about a whole ecosystem in India, which has been developed uh, to bring all this Western stuff, Western social sciences into India for breaking India purposes. And the elites are involved, the industrialists are involved, the uh, government doesn't know what they're doing because they're allowed to some of this stuff. Some of the venture capitalists are funding such projects. Uh, certainly the, the NGOs, certainly a lot of the media, certainly a lot of the academic people are into this. So you, you, if you're interested in, uh, if you're just looking at uh, what's the effect on Indian society, uh, you can read you can read the part three and you will see a lot of examples of what's happening in India that is very devastating. If you want to then go deeper and say, where is it coming from? How come something is happening here and there all over India and it's not isolated stuff, it, there's a pattern to it. Then you look at part two, which tells you the, the think tank where all this is being developed and formulated by Indians. Not only the Indians are the workers being brought, knowledge workers, scholars being brought into the places like Harvard, Harvard and Stanford and Brown University and I'm sure Toronto, University of Toronto, I'm sure, and McGill and all that are also into this. I'm sure that. Um, so this, uh, uh, that'll, that's what the part two is, the actual mechanisms, the different departments and what they're doing and who said what and who did what, a lot of examples are there. And then if you want to say, okay, but why are they doing it? What's the theoretical framework? What in our tradition we call Siddhant. You know Siddhant. Siddhant means a, a kind of a, a, the principles of thinking. Uh, not what the conclusions are, but how do you think? What is the theory by which you reach conclusions? So that's Siddhant. So what, what I'm describing is the Western left-wing pseudo-liberalism Siddhant, the latest one. Okay, and, and that is the topic of the first part of, of the book. So you can engage the book as a theoretician, as somebody who's interested in knowing what, what the issues are, what the problems are that are being created uh, in Western countries, or looking at it, what are the, what's the impact on India. So we looked at all of that, that's why it's a comprehensive book. Now, Vijaya mentioned cancel culture. So I want to say a few more words, a few words on explaining that in a little more detail. I've been canceled for 30 years <laughs> before, before they had that term because I was a troublemaker. I must tell you, when I first started my foundation, we were the only funding source, Hindu funding source, Indian funding source for places like Harvard, Columbia University, uh, University of California, many major universities. We were the only funding source. This is before it became popular for all these billionaires to come and start writing big checks and putting their name on a building and so on. There was no, at that time, there was no Mahindra Humanities Center at Harvard 
or Lakshmi Mittal Center for India for South Asian Studies at Harvard. There was no Piramal, you know, uh, this uh, pharmaceutical, this public health thing. These things didn't exist, they came later. And we started funding Harvard in a very big way. In fact, we had uh, one of your best uh, scholars in Canada, Arvind Kumar, Arvind Sharma at uh, McGill University. We had him as visiting professor at Harvard. We had another Canadian, Ashoka Kluchkar, as visiting professor at uh, Harvard. So guess what? We brought Canadians into Harvard. So uh, to be visiting professors, to bring them all this knowledge from an authentic point of view. And then we funded uh, the, the conferences on Indology, the Indology conferences, uh, Indology roundtable we funded. And so the experience I have of Harvard is actual lived experience. It is hands-on experience dealing with them. It's not just copy-paste, cut-paste that I figured out things. This is actually, I've been to Harvard hundreds of times and had all these encounters. So when we were giving grants, uh, I'm a very hands-on person. I did that in my business life, in my entrepreneur life. I would always just be tinkering with ideas hands-on. So I would go to Harvard and look at what are they teaching because we're funding it. Or what is going on in a conference, all the papers I would read or a dissertation if we fund it, what, what, I would read the whole dissertation. And when the dissertation is being defended, I would sit in the audience and raise my hand and argue. And so they found, they started feeling that this guy's a troublemaker. And so they would call me up and say, we love your funding, but we don't love your, we don't think you need to get involved. You're too busy, you should stay home. We'll send you the report, you know. And most philanthropists are like that. Most philanthropists are, so at that time I would be introduced in a conference like this as one of the big philanthropists funding the academic world. That's how I was introduced. My, if you look at the old videos, that's how I was introduced. But I decided that I'm going to not fund them, but I'm going to go into being my own scholar. That's how the scholar was born in me. I, I'm a technocrat by training, and I think anyone who's got technical education, who's scientific, who's analytical, can outperform people in the humanities and social sciences because you have logic, you, you know, you know. People ask me, how are you doing it? This morning we had a meeting with uh, a lot of, uh, you know, wealthy, well-to-do technocrats who are businessmen and, in, you know, and, and, they're, and done very well. And I said, oh, any of you guys, it's a matter of priorities. You just don't want to do this because there's no money in it. You have to actually spend money. But if you chose that if you decided that you made enough money and you want to quit, that's what I did in my early 40s. But if you chose to do that, within a few years, let me tell you, you will actually be better than most of these guys because when you read their stuff, often it is illogical, often the data is not there, often it is like opinions and emotions and some ideological bias which is connecting the dots. It's not the actual data, it is not the actual logic which is connecting the dots. And I used to point this out to the folks at Harvard and all these other, I'm using that as a case study, but I did this in many universities and they just don't like that. They, so then they started canceling me. And when they cancel the person who's funding, then the, he's, the funding stops. <laughs> because, you know, okay. So that's my story. And I have a lot of uh, nice letters from the, all these people thanking me for this grant and that grant and, you know, all these photo ops and all that. I have that. And we made one chapter in this book on, my experiences at Harvard, my 30 years experiences at Harvard. So when I do a Harvard critique, uh, it, it's with real experience that I'm talking about. Now, the basis for cancel culture, why do they, 
Why is cancel culture considered a good thing? It's not, the, and by the way, they're not apologetic that they're canceling you. They think it's the right thing to do. So the reason is that the dominant culture that is the oppressor has made all the discourse. We agree with that. The colonialists made the discourse on India. We agree with that. And the oppressed need to build a counter discourse. The oppressor has built a hegemonic discourse. And now the oppressed should build a counter hegemonic discourse, which means kind of like revenge. We're going to come back and we're going to uh, dominate the discourse. So in order to do that, in order for the, the people who've been oppressed to do that, you cannot allow the oppressor to speak. If the oppressor is sitting there and speaking, he's already got the structural advantages of being the oppressor. He's born into those structures. He knows those structures. You know, his ancestors created those structures. So if he speaks and the others will not be able to counter argue with him. So you have to give them an advantage by silencing him. And that's cancel culture. And that's why it's allowed. It's a good thing to do. So if as the only way a person born into a community designated and marked and labeled, branded as oppressor, the only way that person can redeem himself is to confess. You have to confess, I'm uh, like in the Catholic Church, you have to confess, you know. So you have to confess that I am, like instead of saying I'm a sinner, you have to say I'm an oppressor. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I'm sorry, I've been oppressing and, you know, blah, 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 and all that stuff. And I'm here to learn. You teach me and, you know, that's how you redeem yourself. This is very true. You, 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 there, are, there are a huge amount of data on this. You, there's, a, there's one, uh, uh, I don't know how many of you have seen this uh, video of this white professor surrounded by his students in one of the Ivy Leagues. And they're literally hounding him and he's going back and saying, no, wait a second, wait a second. I'm not a racist. I have done nothing wrong in my life. But they're saying, no, but you are white. You are a racist. But he said, but I'm white. What do I do? What do you want me to do? I, and he's literally like scared. And this is a big video. And, and so they say, they, they, the argument they're giving is, you don't understand racism because you don't have the lived experience we do. We, and the black kid saying, I, we, I have the lived experience. You cannot have my lived experience because you are not in my skin. And so you cannot have my lived experience. But he says, but I have not done anything to you. I've never done anything to any black person myself. So why am I considered guilty? At the end of all this argument, the answer is that you have to confess. For, you have to confess that you're racist. And, and by confessing that you're racist, that you are guilty, then the redemption will start. So then we will be the boss. We will, we will uh, present to you the counter-hegemonic discourse. You have to subscribe to it. So that's what it is. Now, there is this big, uh, another application of this thesis is that um, the Vijaya mentioned the difference between equity and equality. I want to go into that a more, little more detail also. Uh, she's opened up some very important issues, and I think we need to uh, discuss and you can ask you and do ask us questions later. Equity, equality is what old liberalism is. Old liberalism says that everybody should, have, should be given equal opportunities. That means that if you if you are a faster runner, we both got the same opportunity to run this hundred meter dash, and you are a faster runner, you will win. But equity says we want equal outcomes, which means that. Whether you are good or not, we want you to do as well as the other guy. So how do you make 
how do you create an outcome which is equal when nature, nature has made them unequal? How do you do that? So what you do is with quotas. You bring the one who is excelling, you bring him down. You cannot artificially boost the speed of a slow runner, but you can artificially bring down the speed of a fast runner. So by, to make them equal, you are actually making your whole team mediocre. I mean, this is very, and China is laughing at this because they love this because they think that these bunch of people are idiots. Let them destroy themselves. So this is self-destruction. It's like a, uh, like, like one of those, uh, uh, you know, Frankenstein monsters that has been let loose. And now the Western world led by the United States is into self-destructive mode. That is why uh, one of the terms we introduced in this book is called Breaking America. Actually, the original writing was Breaking America. But then we got so much into the India part that we summarized the Breaking America a little bit. We do have a 300 page or so draft of Breaking America and we're going to put that book out also. So uh, the, uh, this, this whole business of, uh, um, you know, using this, uh, using this uh, uh, logic that uh, only people with lived experience as oppressed should speak. And if you don't have the lived experience of being oppressed the way I am, and you are part of the oppressor, you should stay quiet and just listen to me and you should confess that you are oppressor. That's, that's how the process has to be. So I was in a debate, in a discussion with some, some of these folks and they said that this equity, one of the ways to apply this equity principle is that there are too many Asians getting into Harvard because their math scores are very good and that's a problem and that's because of oppression. They are oppressors because they enjoy a structural advantage. They enjoy a structural advantage. They, they maybe come from some background where they were Brahmins or whatever. And so they had this structural advantage. And the blacks are not as good in math, but we have to artificially admit them. Uh, you know, uh, we have to increase the percentage. There's a Supreme Court case. I don't know how many of you know in the United States, the Supreme Court has just accepted a case where people sued Harvard and University of North Carolina and uh, on this, on that they are biased against Asians uh, in order to artificially reduce the percentage of Asian admissions because otherwise too many Asians will get in and they want to take that percentage and apply it to blacks, give more of them to blacks and to whites and bring down the Asians. So the, a group filed this lawsuit and it's gone all the way to the Supreme Court and I think it'll be, the Supreme Court will make a decision in June, they said. It'll be a very historic thing. So I have had this discussion where I wanted to know why, why is it that the uh, merit-based math genius who done on science or math or whatever, he's done good well because he's worked hard, he's a good student, he got good grades. Why should he be denied? Because this is also happening in India, by the way. Uh, this artificial quotas being imposed, overriding merit. So now there is a whole thesis against meritocracy. Against meritocracy. There's a very important book by a Harvard professor called Ajanta Subramanim on the IITs as a fake meritocracy 
Her thesis, a big book, Harvard University Press published it, is all over their curriculum. Basically, the thesis says that uh, the IITs are a bastion support for Brahmin privilege, Brahmin privilege and Dalit oppression. So I would like you to watch my video a week ago. I went to IIT Madras, I gave a talk to the students and I interviewed three professors. And this is a 45-50 minute video. Please go to my uh, Rajiv Malhotra official uh, on YouTube and the second or third most recent one is this one. Watch it. And this is a very interesting thing on how they are constantly, they've now come up with a case that says meritocracy in Indian engineering is actually not real meritocracy, it's actually uh, oppression. It's caste oppression and caste equals race, so it's a form of racism. So now, now the problem is that technocrats are going to be accused, of Indian origin, are going to be accused as being casteist, whether you are or not. It doesn't matter, you belong to a certain structure, that you're a product of that structure. And, uh, uh, and, and hence, when you go to jobs, now they're, uh, uh, Vijaya mentioned a lawsuit against Cisco. Uh, now it's spreading all over Silicon Valley. They are requiring caste census in Silicon Valley companies. You have to do a caste census to see what percent of your people, Indian people are of various castes and so on and so forth. This is a big problem. So I came up with another, I love to apply people's logic back on them. You know, okay. it's fun. So I said, blacks are outperforming Asians in sports because we are shorter, they're taller, so they are oppressing me. So I said that there is black privilege. And they're just dumbfounded like, whoa, okay. So I said, now before you cancel me, let me just tell you. <laughs> because you are taller, I claim the rules of basketball are privileging the tall people. So if you want a good handicap in favoring blacks for maths, then I think that for us, the basketball should be lower. For you, it should be higher. And, and, and I think you should have a quota on the NBA the National Basketball Association teams that says a proportionate number of players on every team have to be Asians. And then you should also have it in football. And then you should also have it in the US Olympic, <coughs> team, Olympic team. Why is it that for certain capabilities of the human being which have to do with athletics is meritocracy? Huh? But with other capabilities which have to do with mental faculties, it's not going to be meritocracy. Why is it that in one case where, based on meritocracy, we are doing better, we are told that we are oppressors and we have to confess that we are guilty, while in some other human domains where other people are doing better, that's considered meritocracy. What a lot of bullshit it is. This is what basically you have to say. So this is, uh, this is uh, the kind of stuff that we've written in the book. It's a pretty open book. We've named names. And, and uh, we also blame some of the, or we mentioned, let's say, let's just say, not blame, but we mentioned that some of the Indian billionaires who are household names are into this. They are implicated because they are funding this kind of research. They are funding this kind of research of wokeism, which is detrimental to our own interests. And why would capitalists who make their money from on the free enterprise meritocracy system, why would they fund research and scholarship which undermines the very basis of their own success? 
Well, if you want, that question is an interesting one. I'll answer it if somebody's interested in the Q&A, but I've taken a long time. So thank you for inviting me. And it's been a wonderful opportunity to speak to you. Thanks. So allow me to introduce uh, Shri Madhu Kalimpalli Garu, who's going to be the moderator for the panel discussion. Professor Madhu is a full-time professor at Wilfrid Laurier University where he teaches several courses on fixed incomes and derivatives to undergrad, MBA, and PhD students of the Lazarus School of Business and Economics. He holds his PhD on finance from Bauer College of Business from Houston. As a scholar of the highest order, he is currently ranked in the top 10 of authors on SSRN by all-time downloads and is, is a well-cited member of academia. Professor Madhu has presented his works in over 140 events across the world. Is uh, all Western thoughts from Marxism to critical race theory are about the oppressor and the oppressed. Why don't they look at the dharma model of harmony in existence as an alternative instead of attacking it all the time? Instead of saying why don't they look at it, they're looking at it from their point of view. We should look at it. The question is, why aren't our scholars doing it? That's the question. So this is an area of research we are getting into, which is to build our dharma response to the social sciences. One of the problems is in the new education policy in India, NEP 2020, uh, they've, uh, they've uh, encouraged liberal arts and a lot of people are now therefore importing the Harvard variety of liberal arts into tech, technology and all over the universities because we don't have our own version. But if you look at the traditional Indian knowledge systems, what the West calls liberal arts has existed in a very mature way. So to develop our you know, response, to develop our theory of social structure, social justice, etc., which is not based on oppressor, oppressed, and so forth. Uh, it's up to us, and it's not something they will do. We have to do. And we haven't done it. This is something too many people sort of just want to talk chauvinistically and talk how great it was in the past and all that. That's not going to help us. We have to apply that. We have to apply the past greatness to today's situations, today's debates. So if social justice is a problem of today in the world, we have to bring out our theoretical framework. We cannot do it anecdotally by pointing out a few stories. We have to create a siddhant. Social, social science is a siddhant. So we have to now develop a 21st century siddhant based on Vedic premises. You know, that's what we have to do. Part of the question, what can we do as Hindus here in RA based in Canada to fight this? Part B of the question is, what can each individual Hindu student here do to address Hindu phobia in the academia? Um, so basically, how do we, what, so what is it we should be doing as a Kshatriya here, as an intellectual You know, that's what I spent the last 30 years trying to develop those kind of uh, toolkits. So this book is like a toolkit, a Hindu toolkit. Because in the toolkit, you first understand where the problem is coming from, how to give a response to the problem, how to argue back, how to hold your ground, what are the flaws in the other side's reasoning, 
And so it's, it's really a toolkit for you to fight Hindu phobia because the more precisely you can diagnose something, the more precisely you can tell the person you already know what, what, what's wrong with their argument, where they're coming from, what is wrong with the whole history of this theory, how it's being applied is a problem, how it's going to create more injustice, not less injustice. So that's what we're arguing in this book. So we take on every in every chapter a lot of examples, a lot of case studies. You could actually do workshops on each one of those, could be a whole workshop. So I would say that uh, uh, the, the best way to fight Hindu phobia is you must know about Hindu phobia, where it comes from, what is wrong with it, uh, what's the theoretical framework and motivation behind it. And then you should have good answers, good, clear answers. Chapter six of this book, which we're going to take out and make a standalone book, is 100 pages on history of Indian social thought. That talks about Varna, Jati, caste, history. It talks about what the texts say. And from the Vedas onwards, Itihas, Puranas, Dharma Shastras, Arth Shastras, what do the texts say? And that also evolves. What happened in the historical period? The historical records say the Buddhist period, the Islamic period, the European period, the post-independence period, and so on, how it has changed. It gives you, for each of these periods, the historical evidence. Counter example, there has been a Shudra dynasty when the Shudras had a dynasty of kings. It's quite well known. It's called the Shudra dynasty. So, uh, all of that, we talk about Ambedkar, who's uh, the champion of the Dalits. The Dalits see him as sort of their, their founding father of their ideology. But I mentioned, uh, I explained how Ambedkar himself totally opposed both Christianity and Islam for Indians. He said that they will be breaking India forces. He didn't use that term. But he said this will destroy the unity and fabric of India. And, you know, people today in, who are supposed to be Ambedkarites, forget that. I mean, his whole uh, critique of Islam is a whole book, whole book he wrote on the critique of Islam and why we ought to reject that. And now it's considered, by today's standard, Ambedkar would be considered Islamophobic. Today, he would be considered Islamophobic. So you need to know, you need to have, you need to be well informed. You cannot give an emotional answer. When you're facing a problem, you have to give a well-informed answer. And, and we, have, we know that it's a huge burden on busy students to expect them to master so much knowledge. We know that. So we want to give you some simple answers with a backup. So if you get in trouble, if you've given a certain answer, then you can go back to this as a reference book and see the more details which you may not have read the first time. So there's multiple levels at which we are presenting this knowledge. Uh, to un one level is to understand the problem, where they're coming from. Second is what are obvious answers you can give. Third is how you can go deeper and get reference sources to substantiate and back your, your case. Thank you. Uh, so I believe uh, we have a few students from the Hindu Star Student Council uh, who want to hear their questions. So Sonam Nadish. Namaste, my name is Soham and uh, thank you for the 
exhilarating talk. I'm quite overwhelmed and uh, I have a lots of uh, lots of thoughts floating around. But I uh, jotted down a few questions. So my first question is: So I take great pride in the fact that our civilization is uh, one of the few surviving indigenous civilizations on Earth, and um, I feel that uh, we should be we should be able to pass this knowledge on to other indigenous societies who are trying to uh, decolonize themselves and uh, revitalize their culture. So my question is how do we do this? And uh, I also want to make it clear that it shouldn't be that we are taking the uh, 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 trying to construct a hegemonic counter discourse but, uh, of uh, identifying them as oppressed and fighting on their behalf. How do we do this? Okay. Yeah, thank you. So I'll repeat the question. Uh, how can we share uh, our wisdom uh, as an indigenous civilization with other indigenous civilizations like the First Nation, like people in Africa, people in Latin America, who, who are still beyond the reach of the westernization? There are people like that. I mean, in Mexico, a very large percent of the people do not subscribe to the uh, Spanish language and to the uh, Christianity, which is brought by the invaders, uh, and uh, they they are native in their practices. So the, the, a lot of uh, native traditions survive around the world. And your question is a very important question. I think that for India, for Hindus to play that role, you have to first become strong yourself. We are highly divided. We need. We are. We, we have all kind of people arguing, fighting, divisive. We haven't done enough scholarship. We're still decolonizing ourselves before we go around and helping other people, which we should. I think we need to do it to our, with ourselves first. And when we are very strong, uh, then we'll be able to export this and rescue other people from the same situation. My question is that uh, as newly immigrated uh, Hindu students uh, in the West. We often find ourselves fearing cancellation at the works at the nascent stages of our careers. This not only hampers our defense of dharma but also impacts the true representation of it sometimes. Hindu students here are often fearful of the dharmic cause and uh, dissociate from our history uh, in order to appease uh, the woke uh, over here and gain their approval of sorts. Uh, my question is how to combat this in our personal lives as well as as a social phenomenon uh, is economic dependence a solution or can this be dealt, this fear be dealt with while remaining in the ecosystem? Are you, uh, is your question mainly about how to fight our fear and our inferiority complex? So, you know, this fear is from an inferiority complex. It's, it, and that inferiority complex is from ignorance because somebody else has taught us about ourselves, not our own gurus, not our own rishis and our own uh, exemplars and our own shastras. So what has happened is somebody else has taken the adhikar to tell us and what they have told us is to make us slaves and dominant, dominate over us. So we have fear of standing up to them. That's what it is. So there's no substitute for childhood upbringing with, with confidence, with practicing the yoga, the meditation, the sadhanas, the various uh, rituals that the tradition has to empower you to, you know, there's no substitute for that. And, and I was raised in a very westernized school, you know, 
and then I went to uh, St. Stephen's College, a highly westernized college and the, the uh, hub of uh, all this Marxism and Nexalized movement in India. Uh, you know, there was no JNU at the time. I mean, this was St. Stephen's College was doing that kind of a thing, the Harvard kind of a role. And yet I had a certain, all along as a child, I had a certain calling, a spiritual calling. I had my own practice and I would read a lot about our traditions, regardless of what they taught in the schools and all that. And um, so I knew that one day I have to give up all this other stuff and get back into my real life pursuit. Now, parents have to inculcate this. I'm very grateful to my mother uh, who, left, who left us a year ago. Uh, she at 95 age. So she inculcated in this. So I think parenting has a lot to do now. What you have to remember is the way you ought to raise your kids one day. You'll be raising your children. Uh, make sure you raise them with very strong dharmic values, including mantra from the time, the earliest stage and including uh, rituals which have profound meanings uh, and uh, the lifestyle. And if you raise them, they'll be better human beings for themselves, for society and for your family. So I think you have to, this is an intergenerational solution. You have to start with a whole new generation. And what people like in my generation can do is one in many will be uh, lucky like I'm lucky I got Bhagwan to wake me up and say okay I got a better job for you rather than going running around making all this money I got a better job for you so give up all that and do this so I did it very few are lucky that uh, you get that guidance uh, I would say in your case also whatever the upbringing has been you should constantly, the mere fact that you're asking the question is very good. It shows that you have that burning desire in you to get rid of this whole nonsense that we've inherited, you know, over recent generations. And I would say that uh, a group like this is so nice, so encouraging to see so many young people taking interest in this. Uh, surely you will produce some leaders here who will rise and inspire the rest and I'm with you. Uh, broadly speaking, what do you think was the cause of decay of a strong culture and dharma? So that is from back in India. What would have been the reason for this decay over time? Was it invasions, occupations, etc.? And what caused the decline of the kshatriyata? Because when you lose the kshatriyata, that is when you become vulnerable. And so, you know, if you start working backwards, you know, you find that uh, the when the kshatriyas got finished off, however they got finished off, we have to find out the details. That is when others came and started uh, taking over one Varna after the other. The Mahabharata destroyed the Kshatriyas quite a lot. That happened. Uh, Ashoka, himself a Kshatriya, gave up the Kshatriyata by example, saying, I don't want to be Kshatriya anymore and whatever happened. I mean, maybe he did some horrible things and he wanted to, it was like his penance or something, whatever it was, uh, he, he uh, became, by becoming a Buddhist, uh, he was actually not uh, helping society long term because yes, we did enjoy uh, a certain period when the great Ashoka empire kind of was, was doing well. But after he died and after a little while, it was not sustainable. And 
uh, others took advantage and we started getting one invasion after another. So what happens is, you know, one Kshatriya defeats all the other Kshatriyas, builds a big empire. And then he says, I'm like Gorbachev says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to dissolve my, my Soviet Union. And then what you have is a weakened state. So there is a, a real politic and hard power role that the Kshatriya has to play. And I, I, that some would say the Mahabharata started this. Some would say that Ashoka started it. Some would say that uh, we stopped, and maybe all these are factors. We stopped doing Purva Paksha of others. Purva Paksha is the study of others. And so it was a very important tradition that you are always studying others. So in, in, in business terms, that means competitive analysis. You're always analyzing your compet competition. And if you stop doing that, then, you know, they'll advance and you won't even know. So you have to do Purva Paksha. So the Purva Paksha of weapons, we stopped doing. You know, the elephant was a big uh, weapon that was hard to be defeat because soldiers on foot could not fight elephant army. And India had, the, some of the kings had, you know, tens of thousands of elephants. That's very difficult to have to maintain. You need a lot of money to maintain so many elephants and train them and so many people to go with it. So India's elephant armies were like modern patent tanks, tanks, huge tank and military infantry. And the horses were not able to fight elephants because they, they, the elephant was stronger. But it's the Mongols who came up with this idea that when you are riding, they were really uh, horse experts. And when you're riding fast, you suddenly jump and stand on the back of the horse. So now when you are standing on a running horse, you are at the height of the elephant with the spear, you can reach his head. So the killing of elephants by foreign weapons, by foreign infantry on horseback uh, started. Now, if in we were doing Purva Paksha, we would have figured it out. We would have said, okay, why did I lose yesterday's battle? I lost it because they have this technique. So I got to have a countermeasure. Either I have to protect my elephants differently, or maybe I need to have those people also. I need to have horses around my elephant so that when those guys come charging, we have a way to stop them. So whatever it is, we could have come up with a remedy if we understood the problem, but we didn't bother to do it. And so for several centuries, uh, horse armies came one after the other, would keep destroying, and the Indian Rajas would just lose, and then they would go get more horse or more elephants and lose, and they get more elephants. So this is a very foolish thing. It shows the decline of the Purva Paksha tradition. And the Purva Paksha is the job of the Brahmin. The Brahmin is supposed to do that and educate the Kshatriya king about these things. And then, you know, Babur... The Mughal, the guy who started the Mughal dynasty, Muslims, he was the first guy who brought cannons on land. But guess what? Cannons had come into existence in, other, in Europe and other parts of the world a few centuries ago. So why were we so introverted rather than sending people out to learn about what others are up to? I mean, cannons were being used between one country and another, one guy and another. Why did we wait for this cannon to come to our head and uh, to our home and blast us, finish us off? So that's how he won the Battle of Panipat.
that was a defeat attributed to the cannons. So, you know, and then the Portuguese brought cannons on ships, on boats. So, they could do the same thing by sea. They would, they would keep their cannon sufficiently, the boat would be sufficiently distant from the coast, right in front of a village, where the bows and arrows could not reach them. Whatever the, whatever weapons India has cannot reach them. You know, because you cannot fight with horses in the ocean or with elephants. Whatever the coastal villagers had could not reach the boat. But the boat had one cannon. All you need is one cannon. You have all the time in, in, for it going for you. You can sit there for a week. You can sit there for a month and just keep hitting one at a time. Boom, boom, until that whole thing is destroyed. And they have no way to run and no way to fight back. The British conquered what was uh, Myanmar, which they called Burma, they went up the Irrawaddy River with a boat and one cannon. One boat and one cannon would go and whenever they found a village on the left side, they would go to the right side, stay out of range and keep blasting. And in those days, it took, you know, each time to load the cannon took a while and then you hit another one. Then you load it again, you hit another one, but time is on your side. Until that village is finished, dead, everybody finished. Then you keep going up the river and do the same thing to the next one. And they finished off the whole civilized, whole thing. So you see, if you want to, part of it is the history of warfare. And the history of warfare is the history of weapons. This is why you have to be at the cutting edge of weaponry. And you cannot let your, let your, enemies get ahead of you in the weapons technology, the defense technology, and we let that happen. So partly it's the destruction of the Kshatriyas, partly it's the stupidity of the, the top Kshatriya of the country giving up his Kshatriyata, Kshatriyata as if it's some noble act, you know. I mean, he could have, he could have said that I don't want to uh, I personally have this transformation. I want to go and be a monk and be, go in for moksha, but I'll, have, I'll uh, transfer the kingdom to someone else and let him rule and let the kshatriyata continue. If it's no longer for me, that doesn't mean that we don't need the kshatriya at all. It means somebody else should take over. I'm no longer good at it. He should have done that. So, you know, if you, we must learn from history. Very honestly, we must learn from history. And, and then, then we can sort of come up with ways that we don't sort of repeat these mistakes. The, um, there's a very strong support for Khalistani movement here in Canada. Uh, not really so for the Hindutva or Hindu. So how do we then, how do you then sort of deal with this? Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, the interesting thing is I was on a, one of these uh, clubhouse, you know, clubhouse is this forum where you have these audio debates and discussions. So I got onto clubhouse and because I was speaking Punjabi, so I love to do that once in a while. And so the, uh, they, they were a whole lot of Khalistanis just abusing me, a lot of galis, a lot of insults, like you are this Brahmin from RSS and you've been destroying Punjab. And I said, firstly, I'm not a Brahmin. And secondly, I'm not an RSS guy. Uh, you know, I may support them on certain things, but I'm certainly not a Brahmin from RSS. 
and I don't think the RSS is run by Brahmins anyway. So they didn't have any facts. They're just full of kind of anger. So I just hung up. And then their leader called me privately and he said, no, 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 I want you because it's, we need to know, we need a discussion with you. I said, but your people are so full of nonsense, they just won't let me speak. So he said, I will tell them that they have to listen to you, please come back. So I went back. So I went back and I said that, okay, I'm going to first of all ask you, how many Brahmins do you know in Punjab? Any of you knows a Brahmin in Punjab? The point is Punjab doesn't have Brahmins. It's very interesting. Punjab has the peasants who are the uh, very rich, uh, you know, Jats, they're, as they're called, and the Khatris, the Khatris are the Kshatriya type people, and other traders and different kind of, uh, you know, uh, communities, different Jatis, but there's hardly Brahmins there. So they were all quiet. So I said, you're blaming Brahmins for your problems, but now let me tell you what your problems are. So I said, do you know the fastest growing Churches are in Punjab. Punjab is building near Jalandhar the largest cathedral in Asia. It's coming up in Jalandhar, the largest cathedral. You can see it far away. My God, it's like, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a one like that in the United States. Huge. And every few kilometers is another church. So I said, that's what's happening to your society. So you think that the Brahmins are messing up your society, but your kids are all becoming Christians. So you should think about that. And then I said, have you heard of, are you aware of the problem of drugs in Punjab? It's got the largest drug problem in India. And you should know who's doing it, who's, where is the money, who makes the money out of it. The drugs come across from the Pakistan border into Punjab and all this, the Sikhs are, who are ruling are involved in this drug trade because they make a lot of money out of it. So I said, the, <laughs> neither the RSS nor the Brahmis got anything to do with your real problems. And I must say, this leader, he, he was very appreciative. None of those young fellows were able, wanting to take this matter seriously. So my experience with this uh, the young Khalistani uh, weaponized people is that they are they are not educated type people. Uh, they are uh, the Jats, the Jat type of people from India, uh, from Punjab, uh, and they have been sold this idea of victimhood. That is a critical race theory, wokeism, uh, you know, methodology. You go and you take these disenfranchised. Some of them are on drugs. So there's a lot of unemployment. So you kind of weaponize them as victims and then you build this whole thing, narrative that they buy into. And then you find that a lot of, uh, lot of Pakistani um, help going to these <coughs> groups. I know because somebody I know was got a lawsuit from the Khalistanis because they accused him of uh, uh, terrorizing them. <laughs> he's a journalist, but he's accused of terrorizing them for, because of his writings. And he's found that another person who had a legal battle with the Islamic community, both of them got the same lawyer. So there's the same lawyers working for both of these. Uh, and also, some of the Khalistanis are proud that they're getting support from China. So you see, the complex geopolitics is there. The Indian government needs to wake up and do something proactively before it becomes very serious. And the Indian government needs to take it up with the Canadian government and as a matter of serious concern 
and have some uh, some responses, must have some strong responses. I don't see that kind of a strength from the government. They're just waiting, you know, passing time. What happens is uh, until the fire is lit in Delhi, they think everything is fine. And the high commission people are just sort of marking time. Nobody wants to stick their neck out and act brave, you know, do something courageous. They just want, okay, I'm here for a three-year tenure. It won't be a problem for me. I'll just have a good life as a diplomat. Then I'll be posted to some other country. It's not my problem. So you have that revolving door of the diplomats who are posted in a certain country and they don't take a long-term view. So we, those are some of the issues. But I think this Khalistani problem is going to get pretty bad for Indians. And so I've, I've explained to you some of the causes, uh, some of the factors. But uh, the Indian government needs to take a tough stand with the Canadian government. My dear Rajivji, I have been studying and practicing the Vedic Dharma for the last 50-some years. And you inspire me so much every time I'm with you. You are the warrior scholar of our century, of, our, of this time period. And the entire Hindu community. And all of us who are trying to do so are following your footsteps. I would like to give you a copy. of the book that you inspired for years with the, because we've been friends for years, but I've always watched you and just said, yeah, look at him, he's really doing it and putting the books out. So this is in your honor as well as the honor of the culture that we love so much. Thank you so much. Thank you.